0: Cities are places where continuity and change coexist. History shapes neighborhoods and the relationships between them, while economic forces can reshape a city's landscape or skyline. In Washington, D.C., the friction between continuity and change is ever-present. The data and research that goes into planning such a place is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as regular panelist, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Andrew Trueblood, a housing, economic development, and land use professional. Between 2018 and 2021, Trueblood served as the director of the D.C. Office of Planning, or DCOP, where he prioritized agency efforts around housing and equity. He shepherded the update of the comprehensive plan and led DCOP's support of Mayor Bowser's housing efforts. Prior to that, Trueblood was the chief of staff at D.C.'s Office of the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, where he supported economic development policy and projects and created the Economic Intelligence Program, Program to improve the agency's data and analysis capacity and provide more open and accessible data and analysis. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: How did you get interested in, in urban and city planning?
1: That uh, <laughs> is actually quite an interesting question because it gets to where uh, I grew up which is um, Las Vegas. And it's, it's funny, I'll say, I, I still have a Las Vegas area code on my cell phone, so people oftentimes think that uh, I am spam when I'm calling them. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I grew up, at, you know, being somebody under 21 in a place like Las Vegas really gets you wondering what makes a place and who it's for. Um, and when I went to college, I came out east uh, to go to Princeton, and I saw these really vibrant, interesting, wonderful places all over, and it really got me interested in the kind of nexus between places and people and cities. So that's what I studied, and and how I came down to Washington. I, that's
2: I, I love that definition. What what makes a place, and who is it for? That's a that's a really that's a great picture that's painted by that. So thanks thanks for that. And I'm, now all of a sudden I'm thinking about where we live and thinking <laughs> yeah. about you know yeah. kind of what what that means in terms of as as we think about our future. I. I was, was really intrigued in, in thinking about just the, the, the issues that surface when, you're, when urban and city planning is considered. And I, you know, I had, was looking at one of the, the sets of slides you had produced for a talk you had given where you were talking about both systems and scales. And, and you know, part of what was mentioned in Rosemary's introduction was touch, touching on particularly the, the housing dimension as one of the systems of interest. And then there's this intersection of the scale being city. I, I was wondering if you could just give kind of a little bit of, of a flyover of some of the other aspects of both systems and scales that that you had to consider as part of your work.
1: Certainly. Well, that slide that you're looking at is one that we developed when I was at the Office of Planning. In many respects, it's hard to define planning for for people, you know, that a lot of people think it might just be zoning or approving permits for buildings. Uh, and we use this as a way to help clarify when we think about a comprehensive plan, what does that mean? And we know we have th- various systems and those you mentioned housing is one and thinking of housing as a system was really an important driver of a lot of the policy work but there's other systems. We think of transportation naturally as a system but also environmental and open space systems, also food uh, and health systems, and a lot you know, a lot of work around health and health equity and, and the social determinants of health. Also education, economic, cultural systems, and when we think about questions of displacement. So all of these are really critical systems, and, and most of them are made up of people too, I wanna be clear, and that's where we think about scales, really starting at the individual because we experience each of these systems we experience them not only for ourselves, but our household and our family, also our block and our neighborhood, and our broader community and our city and our county and state and all the way up to the nation and even the globe. And so many of these questions that we face in cities, but any in any place, are about understanding how it plays out at different levels. And housing is a great example of that. And we had to really tackle it at various scales to understand how to address some of our critical affordable housing needs.
0: What kinds of data were you looking at? Because I feel like the demographic data probably is very obvious and being able to sort of count tracts of land and and what buildings are where. But when you're talking about these various systems and their intersections and the scales, like what kinds of data are you looking at to be able to like create a comprehensive plan for a city like DC?
1: That's a a great question. And, And in many ways, I think one of the overlooked values of our comprehensive plan is the data. The comprehensive plan um, is actually broken up into a number of chapters, we call them elements. So some of them are citywide elements, including not only those things like environment and transportation and housing, but also urban design and historic preservation. And then we have elements that are looking at different, what we call planning areas in the city. And and in each of these, we had to find data. So obviously, the census is a critical source of data and other federal statistical agencies like the Bureau of Labor Statistics are useful. But we had to look at other administrative data in many cases, including from our various uh, sister agencies, um, and sometimes also from other organizations and nonprofits that might be doing research. And so the comprehensive plan, while it is 1,200 pages, if you sort of know the kinds of things you're interested in, you can go to the right chapter or element um, and find data sources. I think there's another answer to that question. So uh, apart from promoting the comprehensive plan as as almost an index of potential data, I think it does show there are places where we have gaps. Census data creates gaps, especially when you look at things geospatially. A great example is uh, around what do we think of as a neighborhood Uh, And how do we look at different neighborhoods in the city? In some ways, we have census data that can go to the census block or census tract level, but whether or not those align with neighborhoods is, is a different question. There's an interesting report that a DC government agency called DC Health put out in, I think, 2017 called the Health Equity Report. And they tried to kind of build neighborhood clusters Uh, and then compare the different health outcomes across these clusters, really look at them geospatially. But that took a lot of work. It took a lot of processing. And the challenge of that is then maintaining that data and maintaining that data set over time. One of the things that's nice about census is, is you can update it a lot easier. So those are some of the challenges you have when you try to overlay spatial data. Another, I'll just put one other great example that I like, which is the opportunity insights work that shows different outcomes, uh, how there are different outcomes uh, based on where you grew up uh, using all sorts of tax data. And so once again, taking really important administrative data, in this case, IRS, uh, overlaying it with, with various data sources, but trying to understand it from a geospatial perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think that, that you're, the point that you're raising is an issue of, of some things that you might think are easy to fi- to define might not be. <laughs> you know, and, I, and your example of neighborhood is a really interesting one because it seems like, you know, y- if you, you could define that in multiple ways, depending upon what input you use to sort of slice this up.
1: Uh, completely. I, I will tell you, one thing that Office of Planning never did was define neighborhoods, because it's also emotional. You yeah, identify yeah, with yeah, your yeah. neighborhood. It might be, it's a place you choose to live. And if I draw the boundary in the wrong place, you know, and, and neighborhood boundaries are not, you know, we, we when we do statistics, we have to draw hard boundaries. But they're not hard. They're, they're, they're soft and permeable. And sometimes they're centered around a main street. Sometimes they're clear borders around train tracks or a river or natural boundary. So this is, uh, for for those urban planners out there, I don't know if you're listening, uh, Kevin Lynch's Image of a City book talks a lot about these, you know, boundaries and, and other kind of things that help people define their urban experience.
0: I wonder how important hearing you talk about this, Andrew, it is for people who are doing this work to sort of approach it in an interdisciplinary fashion, right? Because as you as you mentioned, statisticians and anybody doing quantitative work, you have to have hard boundaries, right, and limits for the work that may not always reflect the realities of the lived experience. And I wonder, to be able to do this work well, how important it is it is it to be able to like work with people across disciplines?
1: I think it's it's critical, and and I think. There are various disciplines, so, so obviously depending on what you're investigating uh, is important, but also thinking about it from kind of an individual's experience, um, sort of the empathy that's required to think about what it means to be, especially if you're looking at um, low-income residents or uh, historically excluded communities, what it means uh, to be a part of that community, I think can um, have an impact on how you just think about it and how you frame some of the questions or even some of the analysis.
2: Yeah, so, so so this leads to. Uh, I, I know how difficult it is to work. You know, like with journalists, for example.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am a
2: delight, John. Oh, oh I, I, delight. I mean, well, before before <laughs> Rosemary. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I think that that, that uh, you know this this kind of hard hard boundaries are often things that people struggle with, and I, th- I appreciate that. I'm just curious, what other kinds of of interdisciplinary team members do you have working on these kinds of problems I'm I'm well imagining that someone with geographic information systems backgrounds geographers would clearly be part of this whether they're they're interested in the GIS part or the human geography part uh, so I'm just curious wh- who else might be part of the, the, this, these types of efforts
1: well once again one of the things I will say is you know one of the Great things about urban planning is that it is so cross-disciplinary. And, you know, sometimes that's challenging because sometimes, like I said before, it's hard to define, but it allows us to really look uh, very cross-disciplinary. So, for example, in the Office of Planning, we had a transportation planner. We had a housing planner. We had an environmental planner. We had different neighborhood planners who I think were more on the side of kind of engaging with communities, understanding what the challenges were. We have historic preservationists and historians um, we had statisticians. So I think a whole wide variety of people are planners, but also a whole wide variety of people find their way into kind of a municipal planning office. I also should say, I think the reason we're here is I had the, the joy of leading the state data center. So the, Washington DC is obviously a city, a county and a state for federal purposes. So we, our state data center was housed in the office of planning. And so we actually had uh, statisticians um, and access to data and use of, of data and, and, and access to the census that maybe not every uh, municipal planning office would have.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Andrew Trueblood about city planning.
2: You know, you mentioned earlier that you had been involved in an economic intelligence program, and I, I, I love descriptions like this when I don't understand what they mean. <laughs> so help me understand, what exactly does do you mean by economic intelligence, and what are the problems that they work on?
1: So this was an effort that I started when I joined the deputy mayor for planning and economic development. And there was data there, but much of it was very project level data. How many jobs is this project going to create? What are the timing for that project? And I knew that that was important. I knew that the deputy mayor and mayor wanted to be able to talk about the number of jobs and all of that. So the first thing I did was just help structure that a little bit better. But I realized, too, that we needed to be able to zoom out a little bit more and understand more context for what we were doing, looking beyond an individual redevelopment project, more at the, the economic winds uh, of the city. Uh, and that was really bringing together various data sources, including employment data, including economic data, such as GDP or, or income, looking at real estate data and housing data, And so it was the first time that we really built a dashboard to look at all of these things on a regular monthly basis and prepared it for the deputy mayor and the mayor. I will say we did that. And then the team itself uh, grew to do even more sort of analytical and data work generally for the deputy mayor's office when I think the value that they created was seen um, by policymakers. And so uh, working on all sorts of things across the government with various Agencies, including my office, the Office of Planning, when I went over there, uh, worked very closely with the economic intelligence team.
0: I know part of the comprehensive plan deals with the issue of housing and affordable housing. And I know it's a huge issue in D.C. as it is in so many places. And I'm wondering, how do you how do you define affordable housing? What goes into deciding what is affordable and and sort of how much does that reflect the sort of, again, the lived experience of people in D.C.?
1: That's a question that we get often. um, And I think it gets to the question of the scale of housing and what are you looking at at it from? So from an individual perspective, we oftentimes talk about housing affordability. And that means, does it feel affordable to me? (laughs) Right? Uh, And that is very broad, depending on me and feels. Uh, And (laughs) so... Uh, I think, you know, you find people oftentimes, including where I live uh, in the city, spend more money on housing, but they might save money on transportation. Here, once again, you can start to see the nexus between different systems. But there is actually a federal definition uh, for uh, affordable housing. So when we talk about affordable housing, sometimes with a capital A and a capital H, it means that a household doesn't spend more than 30 percent of their income, ideally, for their housing. And what it does is that it drives a lot of our housing policies to say that if we're subsidizing housing based on their median income, the rents should not be above a certain percentage of their um, income. And so it drives almost all federal, state, and local housing is driven by these, uh, what used to be called area median income, now is called median family income for the real stats that are data nerds out there, but it's driven on that. So there's a technical answer that oftentimes I think to get to the point of the question is not sufficient when we'll ask about their individual experiences. And that's one of the things we tried to do is bridge like these policies that deal with housing at a higher system level um, with individual experiences that may or may not benefit uh, from those broader policies.
2: You know, you, you had mentioned earlier, just before we were about to start recording, that some of your recent work has moved into topics such as measuring equity. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what, what, you're, what you're doing there and, and what are some of the challenges?
1: Yeah, uh, this is a topic that has come up uh, as I've been a technical advisor for the 60 finalists of the Economic Development Administration's Build Back Better regional challenge in which equity is one of the main goals. Uh, it's about doing economic development, not only to grow the pie, uh, but to make sure that historically excluded communities benefit from that growth uh, in a way that hasn't always been insured in the past. So that's a great goal, but the question is, how do you ensure it? And one way is through measurement and data. And I think what we're seeing uh, is that there is some data out there. Oftentimes you have racial data, you have income data. Uh, when you talk about inequities in terms of spatial inequities, rural versus urban, for example or coal or manufacturing, you have some data there. But uh, I think we're finding that uh, really disaggregating data in a way that breaks it up it, 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 by the communities that we're interested in is not as easily done as it is said. And, in, and there's even ethical questions about whether that data ought to be collected, whether people ought to identify, You know, in some ways you don't know the outcome of something you can't measure, but measuring it raises its own ethical questions. And so I think these are really critical questions uh, that will be, continue to come up and hopefully be resolved uh, in the coming period of time, whatever that is. Um, and I guess I would just add that the most recent census, uh, with all of its problems, uh, I think raised another interesting question, which is when people identify with multiple races, how do you categorize and how do you understand that data? It becomes much more complex. Um, And beginning to understand the nuances and complexities to be able to analyze and to be able to understand if we're making a difference, I think that's a really critical question for our time.
2: So, you know, you you mentioned a couple of aspects of it is, one is the the growing the pie as part of this goal, is this economic effort. And the other part is, Trying to make sure that these historically excluded communities are able to participate, and so so how you know you, so you're you're evaluating and, and you have this rubric for evaluating these proposals that will look at kind of the potential for pie growth and also kind of then the proposals for thinking about how how these communities will be included that that have historically been excluded. So so can you give us just some sense about you know some some like examples? I mean I know you you can't give us one of the sixty obviously. I mean but just sort of help us frame kind of what does that mean in a a very concrete example?
1: Sure. Well, I just want to first be clear uh, that my work, which is actually through the national nonprofit called America Achieves, is supporting all 60. And actually, all 60 are available on the EDA's website. We know who the finalists are, and I hope all of them win, even (laughs) though I know that that is physically impossible or financially impossible. I want them all to get all of the money they ask for. Uh, So I am not on the evaluation side, I am sort of on the cheerleading side. Uh, which has been great. It's yeah, been
0: great. that sounds amazing. <laughs>
1: and, yeah, and I encourage uh, folks to take a look uh, at the website and see, you know, this is everything from major cities, San Francisco, uh, Newark has proposals on the port, Indianapolis and Pittsburgh, but also um, tribal reservations. The Hopi tribe has a proposal, Pala Band of Indians have a proposal, and then uh, rural areas, uh, northern Wisconsin. Uh, Pennsylvania Wilds. So uh, it's really interesting to look at how each of these places uh, propose to grow uh, using the assets they have. So this is, we always kept saying, this isn't your grandfather's economic development where you're chasing smokestacks and just trying to get, steal jobs from another place. What you're trying to do is figure out what you offer as a place uh, and really double down on that. Uh, And so that's been, you know, that's an important piece of growing the pie and doing it in kind of an asset based way. But it's also about thinking who benefits. And every community has historically excluded communities in a place like the District of Columbia that is relatively well known. Uh, It's our black and brown populations. Oftentimes in cases, it's our elderly populations. So we, we sort of know, depending on what we're looking at what those communities are. But there are other places, maybe more rural, where it might not be necessarily racial. It might be gender or age. And so it gave each finalist the opportunity to define and understand, look back at what those historically excluded communities are, why are they excluded, and then how will this money address those, uh, those causes, those root causes, uh, and ensure that uh, there's more equitable economic opportunity.
0: What advice would you have for someone who wants to go into this? Because it feels like urban planning is only going to get more complicated for, for many, many reasons. And so I just wonder for a young person or a statistician who, who is thinking about this as a career, what do they have to keep in mind if they want to do what you're doing?
1: Well, I think a, a couple of things. So number one, a statistician going into urban planning, I think is great. Oftentimes I tell urban planners that they do need to be able to be fluent in data. Oftentimes in urban planning, that's uh, geospatial data, that's GIS and mapping. But understanding more broad, or broad data is, I think, even more important. Whether you're working on a small area plan with the community or a regional transportation plan, really understanding and interrogating data is sort of the fundamental piece to being able to know what you're talking about. And I think that's my other piece of advice that I oftentimes give folks who are interested in planning, which is know what you're talking about. Like, Figure out what you can have a deeper knowledge in. Um, in, in, In a field that is so generalist, having some sort of specialized expertise is important, even if You do broad work. So I will say, you know, my background is strongly in housing and economic development, but I had to do work in transportation and historic preservation and urban design. Um, And so I really love the opportunity to go deep in some things, but also go broad in others. And I think that's probably true for many uh, statisticians, right, because you can sort of apply that to anything. So, you know, one thing I, I'm
2: sure is that, that your work gets a lot of coverage. There, there's probably a lot of interest in the kinds of things, the reports that you would issue, the comprehensive plans. I can well imagine that there's a lot of uh, journalistic interests in the work. And are there particular things that, that you really kind of think is, are, are beautifully done and easily reported? And are there other areas where you, you've seen kind of some challenges in how this work has been reported?
1: That's a a great question. I've talked to folks about how when I joined the Office of Planning, I kind of became the spokesman for the agency in many ways. And I had had media experience at Deputy Mayor's Office, but being the principal of an agency, you're even more in the limelight. Uh, And I actually ended up enjoying it uh, as I got used to it. Between working with the media and working with communities, I think I was able to refine my voice uh, and how I communicate ideas. And I think that is uh, kind of, to your question, one of the hardest things in local policy, but in state and federal policy too, is being able to communicate what are relatively complex ideas. So, you know, we, this, people listening to this probably understand when I say a housing system, what that means, you know, how it connects to a regional market or even national or global financial flows and all of that affects affordability. But when I'm talking to residents or journalists, I can't, I I lose them, right? So, Figuring out how you, you you can share ideas in a way that makes sense is important, and that flows through to our reports. I was a big fan of shorter reports. Uh, the comp plan was so long because we inherited a very long comp plan. Uh, one of the recommendations moving forward is that it needs to be much shorter to be more accessible. And that is an equity question too. If it takes somebody hours and hours to page through dense materials, that's not equitable. So. Thinking about how, who our audiences are and how we share information. Um, One of the discussions I had with the Office of Planning is I would oftentimes get back, well, this is a technical writing. And I I said, no, we don't do technical writing. Everything we do, I want somebody to be able to understand. I mean, we would do technical writing every now and then for a federal environmental impact statement or something. But for the most part, I want our work to be things that we can put on our website and that people can understand. I would say uh, to the second part of the question, it's really challenging uh, to have a conversation oftentimes about data and systems when people have individual experiences. And I, I guess the high-level uh, example of this is all of the focus on gentrification and displacement. In w- when much of the data shows there are far more census tracts that are still underinvested, that have increased in poverty or gone down in income or up in uh, unemployment or up in segregation, Those, that's still a problem in our city, in the district, and in the country— but if you hear the conversation, you would think it's only about displacement, which is actually a very small percentage of the census tracts. So I think, and, and this I see uh, as I teach at Georgetown, you know, there's, there's a lot of energy and focus on the things that I think resonate emotionally, uh, but being able to take a step back and textualize it, not to say that displacement is not a problem because it certainly is, but contextualize it and really understand and not lose sight of other big challenges and relative scales of them, I think is critical.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks
1: for having me. Yeah, thanks, Andrew.
0: Stats & Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats & Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats & Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.